Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Santosh, your friendly herpaderpatin. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's still in my brain. Your friendly neighborhood <laughs> pediatric infectious disease doc and scientist. <laughs> if you were a person who studied just one infectious disease, Santosh, yeah. Yeah. herpes, <laughs> Sure. Would you still be an infectious disease doc, or would you be a herpesologist? <laughs> uh, Not to be confused with a snake, a snake researcher who's a herpetologist. Herpetologist, correct? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there is any. You could say you're a virologist, right? Because you're studying the herpes virus. And if you wanted to take all the fun out of it, you could say I'm a herpes virologist because herpes virus is a you know genus. Yeah. Now, what if you studied herpes and snakes? Then you'd be a herp herpivirologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now you can't be dumb and do this, or you'd be a derpy herp herpetologist. I don't know if this. Now, is if you if you were if you were dumb, but you studied the brains of snakes infected with herpes that infect sure. its way up there. CSF, yeah. presumably. Yeah. Then yeah. you'd be a neuroderpy herp herpetologist. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. But seriously, and I think we've discussed this before, the reason that herpes and herpes, which is snakes, right, in, 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 in Latin and stuff, the reason that they are related is because I think herpes does mean to creep. So, you know, like the, the vesicles creep along your skin kind of a thing. So they are maybe interrelated. Now I have to Google at some point, not now, if you can, if there and, is snake herpes. And scene. Yeah. Thank you for attending this week's medical etymology. <laughs> 
Oh, the herpa herpetologists. Brave men and women. <laughs> oh, hi, home listeners. I didn't see you there. <laughs> Is this, have we finally gotten to the point where we're doing this for other people? Is that <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it is one of our last alternate weeks before we end the season. And since it's an alternate week, Santosh, you know what that means. Oh, man. Time for our favorite bi-weekly segment. Journal Club! Yay! Yeah. Our first study, which you sent me, um, Santosh, you're not you when you're hungry. Snickers has been telling us that for years. (laughs) Oh, and, and other candy bars as well. We can't uh, you know, but, show any bias. <laughs> but as the word hangry has worked its way from text to TikTok to now big tech. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is this a real scientific thing? Not eating actually make you irritable. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like the- it requires a fully funded scientific <laughs> study. It does. It it really is. But more importantly, kind of like under, well, we're, we want to figure out the underlying mechanisms of why we get hangry. So this is a very cool set of studies. And the story leading up to it is really neat because it shows how in scientific disciplines, you can have an intuition about something or an observation, but the truth really comes out in good and proper uh, digging and actually looking through to see, Hey, is this actually real when I, you know, play around with it or is it not, you know? So going all the way back, we had 2016 in one of our favorite journals, Josh, neuropsychopharmacology. (laughs) Now if you're publishing your snake research in that. No, no, stop it. Stop it. (laughs) You will never get through this. So 2016, they actually injected rats with a hormone that actually, you know, when your stomach is empty, it produces this hormone and the, the rats weren't food deprived. So we weren't torturing them, but they felt food deprived. So we actually watched them get kind of hangry about this. They, they had an emotional response coupled with their uh, hungriness. Um, 2021, we found it in male fruit flies. We've seen it in goats, a horned goat antelope um, that you can find in Spain, France, and Italy. And then, you know, 2013, the journal Psychology looked at the behavior of hungry people in 10 studies. This all comes around to here in 2022. Uh, the author Viren Swami et al. published a beautiful paper in PLOS One that says, Hangry in the Field, an experience sampling study on the impact of hunger on anger, irritability, and affect. And this was a self-study, right? So it was, you know, self-reporting type of thing. 64 participants in Central Europe. 21 days in which they reported their hunger, anger, irritability, and pleasure at five time points during the day. And they found that this is still self-reporting. We had greater levels of self-reported hunger associated with anger, irritability, lower pressure. And it was significant even after you accounted for sex, age, body uh, body mass index, dietary behaviors. So we found here in the self-reporting study 
along with this body of work in animal studies that have gone back now more than a decade, that yes, outside of the laboratory in real life, people do get hangry. Now, let's let's put the brakes on for just a second as I yeah. go over the methods for collecting data here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, yeah, this is this is a weakness of the study. Yes. <laughs> Hold your horses, Tonto. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Participants from Central Europe signed up for an app that the researchers use for data collection. Not bad in a modern world. You know, surveys are never the best data collection method, but it's it's a good start. For three weeks, participants received five daily smartphone notifications prompting (laughs) them to complete a short survey. Yep. Three of these notifications were sent at fixed times before main meals at 8 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. when the researchers thought participants were likely to be hungry, and the remaining two were sent randomly between 9 to 11 a.m. and 1 to 5 p.m. So imagine you're sitting down trying to take a nap. Ding! Hey, are you hungry? No. <laughs> are you angry? How angry? <laughs> then, then you're like, fine. Actually, I should probably go get something to eat. You go to get something to eat. Ding! Hey, are you hungry? Are you angry? <laughs> How angry? And this happens five times a day. Well, you think that might influence the irritability in responding <laughs> to a survey? Just a skosh. Yeah. So that's a very, very fair criticism of this. And we do have to remember that all of these folks volunteered for this study, number one, and they had to had to go through a consent procedure where very, very likely they went through kind of a simulation of, hey, this is what this is going to be like. And there's certainly going to be people who stayed on because they actually wanted to keep up with this whole thing. Uh, There are going to be others who dropped off potentially. But the neat thing here, Josh, is, okay, you might get really angry at the dings and then hangry at various times of day and everything like that. And so might I separately, but you are your own internal control, meaning that your baseline eating habits, irritability, you know, your reaction to dings and that kind of a thing will vary within yourself based on your hunger and emotional state. And so you don't necessarily have to compare everybody to everybody else, but you're gathering a nice big sample size. So it's, it's kind of a neat thing. Because, yeah, you can totally have the pissed off person, but they'll be less pissed off when they're full, maybe. (laughs) Have a Snickers, I guess. (laughs) So the theme of this week's Journal Club is no cure, no problem. Solution (laughs) Solution to being hangry? Go get something to eat. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's true. So that's all true. of our all of our studies are going to look at well solutions or possible solutions for things to which we do not currently have them. Uh, yeah, let's start big and head all the way out into space. All the- <laughs> you want to find a solution for space? What are you doing? That's right. I want to find a solution for space. Well, okay, look, (laughs) we're talking about getting hangry 
And I was also thinking about space and astronaut food. But imagine you're an astronaut chosen Uh for the first mission to Mars. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. After years of preparation, dozens of health checks, package upon package of freeze-dried ice cream, I assume. (laughs) Based on Space Camp. (laughs) You know Space Camp for you was like 30 years ago, dude. Months of travel. (laughs) Okay. You are ready to set foot on the red planet, and oh, you develop a kidney stone. Ooh, oh, this is scary. Yeah, okay. Now, you're going to have to ask someone politely for help, because as we know from Alien and Space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, that's true. So researchers at the University of Washington's Applied Physics Lab are working to solve how to treat kidney stones in space. Now, Santosh, we already have sound waves to break up kidney stones. Uh, This is already done in a hospital. It's called shockwave lithotripsy. Mm -hmm. And you take a roughly refrigerator-sized machine and break up stones using large jolts of ultrasound, basically just making your refrigerator scream at your stones, Get out of the body! <laughs> yeah, a little more sophisticated than that, but yeah, that's that's the basic idea. Get out Absolutely. of the body now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you have this Star Trek like tech that uses yeah. focused ultrasound waves. Now, here's the upgrades. It can detect and move the stones around, then break them apart with short bursts of energy, making it much easier to pass. We already have data from NASA that shows astronauts are more susceptible to developing kidney stones in microgravity environments. Yes, yeah, actually... That's a scary thing. So you're saying now one of the scary things that we might not be able to treat, it actually happens more when they go into space. And there's already been one case of an astronaut developing a stone on the International Space Station. And complications from this can be severe enough that you have to return to Earth for medical treatment if you can't pass it naturally. You know, on a Mars mission, you can't send somebody back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not It's not like grabbing a taxi and you're like, oh, man, I forgot my you know sweater or something. <laughs> so the new it's technology... The new technology is called burst wave lithotripsy, which breaks the stones apart with targeted, smaller, frequent bursts of ultrasound. So the way they explained it, which is charming, especially as we're talking about space age tech, (laughs) the traditional technique is like hitting a stone with a hammer. But burst wave is like chiseling away at it over and over, like a little Michelangelo of kidney stones. (laughs) You think the astronauts would then, you know, you finish your lithotripsy and then they they pee out like the teeniest, tiniest David? Well, because <laughs> like this is a Milo or something. It's like, and tink, tink, and you put it under a microscope and it's a. <laughs> yeah. You, because this delivers small, short bursts, it's a much lighter and therefore portable machine. Now, they haven't gotten it to fully break up the stone yet because they're still having trouble focusing the sound waves. But it does 
it does bring up some very interesting treatments because let's face it, space medicine is going to end up being a whole unique field when you're dealing with infections and breaks in the absence of gravity. And so uh, our first cosmic kidney stones in space, no sound can yet treat your pain, but we're getting there. This is the culmination of some research, which included analyzing tiny teeny mouse kidneys on the ISS in the <laughs> so that we and could now, actually figure out why 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 we, they form kidney stones in space. And once you're done studying these tiny teeny mouse kidneys on the ISS, uh-huh. well, you want to give them a cigarette for all the stress of that work. <laughs> and what if yeah. these teeny tiny tobacco addicted space mice could then <laughs> regenerate their lungs, undoing the damage of years of smoking. Well, two wow. clinically available drugs have shown promise in restoring the regenerative capacity of mouse lung cells, which suggests we may be able to adapt them to treat COPD. Oh, cool. Very, very cool. Okay, so we said space mice before, but this time around, we're not space mice. This is just mice mice. I mean, presumably this would also work on space mice, but there's a lot more labs on Earth. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. So COPD is the third leading cause of death worldwide after heart disease and stroke. Mm -hmm. And in most of the cases, I'd say I see probably results largely from smoking. Uh, There are cases due to air pollution or genetics, but by and large, COPD is a reactive disease. Yeah. And it involves an excessive immune response that damages the lungs, leading to shortness of breath, chest tightness, and usually elevated mucus levels, so a lot more coughing. So we really don't have any way of preventing the progression of the disease. Aside from telling people, stop doing things that advance it, we only have drugs to treat symptoms. Yeah, and there is some genetic variability in there. Just like you said, Josh, there are those who have a deficiency of a very important enzyme called alpha-1 antitrypsin. And if you're lacking that enzyme... that causes a lot of fibrosis to occur both in your lungs and your liver. So you can actually get early cirrhosis as well as lung disease. It turns out that some of these genes do have an effect on people, for instance, who smoke in that you can have a smoker, the occasional smoker who will smoke for 50 years and not have any problems. And then you have other people who are exposed to very mild amounts of smoke secondhand or pollution and you know they can go down very very quickly but you're absolutely right we can slow it down in some cases and in actually a lot of cases by telling them to just put down the damn cigarettes but we cannot reverse it right now and a lot of the reason for that is because the cells that get damaged are regenerating cells you have cells in your lungs known as epithelial progenitor cells that normally regenerate the lining. Why? Because we're constantly getting things out of our lungs. That's what coughing and to a much lesser extent sneezing is, you know, clearing, clearing your passages of obstructions. The team exposed researcher Gosens and his colleagues after kind of studying some of this disease model 
exposed mice to cigarette smoke for four months. So I guess just the one dude who on the team who smoked had to take all his breaks <laughs> in the room with the mice. <laughs> so uh, the blue, yeah, take my because no. he's oh, French. You stop it! <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Going into your Jacu stove. <laughs> you no, take no. the progenitor cells yeah. and you place them in a gel from the mice. For the sake of research and smoking, there are actually really bizarre robot smoking machines <laughs> that can actually light, you know, it lights the cigarette and then provides <laughs> provides suction and airflow so that you can and, and then you can decide whether you want to suck in the the filtered smoke that comes in you know usually people's lungs or if you want the blown out smoke but it does look a little creepy because you know the, the cigarette is in kind of the mouth of this thing <laughs> although it doesn't look like a mouth and it does zoom, zoom, like do that you know like suction like you would on a cigarette <laughs> so you don't need the French person. <laughs> All right, so we've got the T eight hundred smoking cigarettes over here. You, you think this is the one that uprises against us and just gets sick of having to sit there and smoke all day? And then he comes back. And he's, so come with me to- if you want to live. <laughs> <laughs> to test these drugs, the team exposed mice to cigarette smoke for four months and yeah. then took the lung progenitor cells from them and grown in a gel for two weeks containing one of the two drugs they were testing or uh-huh. a control dish with no drug. And the drugs are iloprost, which is used to treat high blood pressure in pulmonary hypertension, and uh-huh. misoprostol, a prostaglandin analog used to treat stomach ulcers. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. That's so neat. So these are, in a way, you know, anti-inflammatories. They're in that pathway for inflammation, which then results in, you know, scarring and building of these fibrotic scars, which replace the air cells, the actual alveoli that can exchange gas. So you're, you know, in the end, you're left with dead, you know, scar flesh instead of something that can actually work to do gas exchange. So the the big thing that I have on my mind here, Josh, is how would these two medications actually work to reverse the, you know, that fibrosis and actually help you get regular lungs, you know, like actual so, the drugs, the progenitor cells that were grown in the drug-based gel would start forming little mini lung structures, so kind of mini lungs that we call Ooh. organoids. And organoids! Both dr- and both drugs appeared to fully restore the ability of the progenitor cells to regenerate lung disease, which would decrease, of course, after exposure to cigarette smoke. They also treated the mice with these drugs while actively smoking the mice and uh, found they had <laughs> and found they had the same beneficial effect. So it wasn't just mice who had finished cigarettes, but also mice who were actively having smoke blown into their little faces. So oh, okay. the, <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And it's probably by reinstating the circadian clocks in the lung cells, which are disrupted by smoke exposure. 
This is so cool. So they were actually able to get those not quite stem cells, but early lung cells, which then differentiate into those, you know, alveolar cells. So they were able to get those to grow again. That is so cool. That's amazing. Now, the model for this study used mice aged equivalent to about 20 human years of age. So (laughs) one of the problems is that at 20, you're still fairly resilient. You can bounce back from it. Typical COPD patients are closer to 50, and regenerative regenerative ability tends to slow with age. So we're still many years off from this being an effective treatment, and it might only work on some of those more genetic-based ones, as opposed to the years and years of damage from pollutant exposure. So I guess this was a really long roundabout way of saying, stop smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And also, I know here in the United States, you know, our midterms are here and voting is coming up. Anything and everything that representatives can do, that voters can do to actually pay attention to actually fighting, you know, the tobacco lobby in a legal way so that they can't just run wild and, you know, put cigarettes everywhere anywhere sell them to whoever they want to yes though that is also a very important part of this um you know it's that kind of action that got these horrible vape pens kind of sidelined quite a bit we still have a lot of work to do but yeah so now that we've given the standard doctor advice multiple times this year of stop smoking uh we let's talk about one of our sign out signatures which is get your shots Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's lots of good reasons to get a vaccine. One 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 good reason maybe, what if it could fight cancer? I know what you're thinking, Santosh. There's already <laughs> vaccines that can fight cancer. Yeah, yeah, specific cancer vaccines. We've covered them before. Uh-huh. Yeah, so essentially you show the body some antigen which looks like the cancer and primes the immune system to say, "Hey, that's the evil thing. Go fight that." So it is after a person has gotten cancer. So it's not preventative, it's active. So you put that vaccine in, the immune system turns up to 11 and then goes and fights all of those other antigens, which looks like the one that you showed them in the vaccine. And those are the cancer cells, um, which is actually something that our immune system does naturally anyway. We're just giving it a, a vaccine, a boost. I was actually looking more for something along the lines Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The, the HPV can prevent cervical cancer. Oh, yeah. 
That one too. <laughs> but that one. <laughs> so that one is. Yeah, that's cool. The science behind it is fine. <laughs> that's that's... So that's the 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 HPV virus. Yes, is targeting a specific virus. However, so we actually fight off the virus to prevent the vaccine. Yes. Well, now I... let's make use of the virus. <laughs> One of the most untreatable, notoriously untreatable kinds of cancers is pancreatic. Now, that doesn't mean we don't still make attempts to treat it, but it is rare for those attempts to be across the board successful. However, pancreatic tumors have been drastically shrunk in mice using a pretty creative new strategy that allows the immune system to find and kill the cancer cells. We're looking now into adapting this for people. Uh, for the moment, most people who diagnose with pancreatic cancer tend not to survive much beyond months to a year or so, mostly because it's a silent one that spreads widely before it declares itself, making it harder to treat. Yeah, so most- as a for instance, uh, we have screening for breast cancer, right, or testicular cancer. We ask people to do self-screening, come in for mammograms. And many of those, because of that, are caught early enough where sometimes you can just resect the tumor and you're done. But we don't have the same type of good screening for pancreatic. So by the time you have the symptoms, like the actual upset stomach, reflux, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, weight loss, all this kind of stuff, it's already way, way far gone. Most, And that's because those are all immune responses. And most pancreatic tumors tend to be surrounded by cells that suppress immune activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very smart, smart little bastards. So now listen to this. You're going to love it. Um, <laughs> okay, Claudia, okay. Claudia Gravecamp at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Fantastic Al, name. Mm. Right? Uh, yes. Wanted to therefore make it easier for the immune system to detect and destroy can- pancreatic cancer. So they developed an approach using listeria bacteria, which are naturally attracted to tumors, like they feed on them. And they <laughs> then used these listeria to selectively deliver tetanus toxin to the pancreatic cancer, or an, an inactivated form of tetanus toxin. So they use bacteria to de- deliver a different kind of bacteria's toxin. Yeah. And, because, <laughs> and because most of us have been vaccinated against tetanus in childhood and receive regular, hopefully, vaccine updates for tetanus, our immune systems can detect it for the rest of our lives. So pancreatic cancer cells loaded up with tetanus become visible (laughs) and therefore vulnerable to attack. This is a little bit of a Rube Goldberg way of approaching cancer treatment, I'll admit. (laughs) This is so cool. Yeah, you need something that is intracellular and listeria actually goes into cells in order to create the, their infection. So you need something that can dive intracellular. That's the first part of your Rube Goldberg. And then you have toxoid, tetanus toxoid, which is what you give people in order to get immunity to tetanus. It's the weakened tetanus. Uh, toxin. And so now if the cells are loaded up with toxoid and they're going to be expressed on the cell surface a little bit, you know, they're going to shed them from time to time, then the immune system says, oh my God, we kill that. And they don't even know that they're fighting cancer. (laughs) They're just going after the, that big sack of toxoid. (laughs) 
This is so beautiful. And the cool thing here is Listeria can be used to deliver a lot of different things then. Yeah. So, well, specifically because it does attack tumors. Um, Now, this attack was amplified by giving the mice a chemo drug that also stopped some of the cells from suppressing immune activity. So, you know, we're, we're cherry picking our data a little bit in the sense that they knew these mice were going to develop tumors. And then they kind of lifted a little bit of that immune suppressant. So it's really more of a proof of concept. You know, you'd have to still be able to detect pancreatic cancer. But even if you do have an advanced tumor, this treatment combination of the chemo drug along with the listeria filled with a big old bag of toxins (laughs) reduced the size of the original pancreatic tumors as well as those that had spread to other parts of the body by over 80% and improved the average survival time of the mice by 40%. Wow. That's, that's insane. Now we, we always have this uh, idea in mind. What we want is to actually eliminate the cancer when someone gets it is to cure them, actually get rid of it completely. But we should never discount our ability to actually add years of life onto a person where you say, okay, it might be terminal, but at least we can give you, you know, more years of healthy life so that you can do the things that you want to do, put your affairs in order. Those that's actually just as important. So tumor shrinkage as important as tumor killage. (laughs) I I will say, Josh, the, the gemcitabine that they use to actually do the, you know, the immune suppression type of thing, that gemcitabine is a chemotherapeutic and I believe it's used in pancreatic cancer treatment anyway. So we might be okay with actually using it as, because it's a standard of care. So the next kind of tumors that Listeria really get excited about and that they're focusing their next study on is ovarian cancer. Of course, one of the main important things that you want to do when you're screening for lots of cancers is once you hit a certain age, or age which we are rapidly approaching, Santosh, uh, you want to make sure you get screening colonoscopies. Yeah. Um, I'll put in a personal note right here. My father, who actually is an oncologist, took the time to get his screening colonoscopy. And about six years ago, they found very early stage colon cancer and took it right out, snip, snip. And that was it. He was cured. Now, of course, colonoscopies can be done for a wide variety of reasons, not just cancer. And they're also often used to monitor the progress of inflammatory bowel disease. Traditionally, we think of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, but there's a wide variety of bowel diseases linked to inflammation. Imagine, you know, having a a tube with compressed air put up your bum is probably not... (laughs) probably not the most comfortable means of investigation or maintenance. Yeah. uh, (laughs) We've talked about this before in a different context. Wasn't this for like reviving people who had died? Like early CPR was blowing smoke up your butt. Yeah. Yeah. The world's very first colonoscopy was also the world's first AED and they were smoke (laughs) up the butt. Um, But I'm actually not 
going to talk about for our next story, the diagnostic aspect. Instead, we're going to focus on inflammatory bowel disease. And rather than blowing just full-on smoke up your butt, what if we took the purest essence of smoke, carbon monoxide, sure. and, then, <laughs> and then did a little molecular gastronomy, turned it into a nice foam, and uh, shoved that foam up the butt to treat inflammatory <laughs> bowel disease. <laughs> I, I would say uh, it's time to bring you away from those weird, weird like homeopathic nonsense articles that you sometimes skim to talk about what's bad in the world. <laughs> is that what's okay, going look. on here? All right, look, Santosh. This carbon is the... monoxide carbon yeah. monoxide can certainly cause some confusion and hallucinations. Yeah. That's why you want carbon monoxide detectors in your homes. It's a sure. colorless, odorless gas, widely yeah. known as a dangerous poison capable of causing confusion, convulsions, and coma. And death. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a neuro <laughs> it's a neurotoxin because it actually suppresses out the ability to take up oxygen by cells, and then they die. <laughs> so, this well, is... you die when it reaches concentrations of fifty percent or more in the blood because it outcompetes sure. binding to hemoglobin. It binds better than oxygen. Okay, but it's not always harmful. Our bodies already naturally produce very small amounts. And about 20 years ago, a researcher named Leo Otterbein at Harvard noted that mm -hmm. production of these small amounts ramps up when we're sick because it helps to reduce inflammation. That's a fine line to walk. Carbon monoxide is very easy to administer, but you hit a too high level and you've killed the patient. Usually not a great way to get repeat business. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> you need a safe and effective way to administer it, and dosing and safe storage can be very problematic for inhalation of carbon monoxide, which goes to the lungs and brain, infusion, which goes into the bloodstream and again outcompetes hemoglobin. So whipping the gas into a foam for a gas may <laughs> do the trick. Oh. Okay, okay, so because now you've trapped the gas in the foam, so very importantly, the operator who's actually administering the stuff, and then the patient in the room, and everybody else who's in the room, they won't just catch a faceful of this stuff because it's it's trapped in there. And I'm guessing you can also then titer the percent or fraction gas that you're administering so that you don't get levels so high that they diffuse into the bloodstream of the patient from the intestines, which can happen. And so you don't get that, you know, spike of carbon monoxide in the bloodstream with, with those hazardous things. So, okay. All right. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. So the researchers placed ingredients <laughs> commonly found in processed foods. They actually thought of this idea, this method of treating inflammatory bowel disease yeah. by watching cooking shows and thinking about molecular gastronomy. Like that was the direct oh. inspiration. <laughs> so they were watching like Iron Chef? <laughs> we're, watching, like... we're watching Top Chef or Iron Chef. And sure. Said, that looks delicious. I wonder if we can use it to treat yeah. immunologic disease. So they took, <laughs> they took ingredients or – or like many gastroenterologists often do, is like, I wonder if I could put that up the 
<laughs> so they took they took ingredients commonly found in processed foods such as xanthan gum inside pressurized vessels containing carbon monoxide then they entrapped the gas inside these preservatives by whipping them around at high speeds and making oh. <laughs> it look like a little dollop of froth milk that you might see on top of your cafe at yeah, a your, cafe your yeah, yeah. Okay, guys. <laughs> now, now, since all the materials used in making the foam are food grade, and the concentration of carbon monoxide is minuscule because it's trapped in these tiny little bubbles, there are no risks when handling or inserting the material. Tiny carbon monoxide bubbles. <laughs> then they took this molecular gastronomy foam inserted uh-huh. it into the rectums of about 40 mice and rats with either inflammatory bowel disease, radiation-induced gut damage, okay. or liver failure related to an overdose of Tylenol. So three pretty common condi- – well, maybe less the radiation-induced damage, but I guess that depends on the field. But still, right. three of the more common inflammatory diseases. And all three, the treated rodents – had significant reductions in inflammation and tissue injury compared with control foam or no treatment at all. So an average disease... <laughs> control foam! <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. For inflammatory bowel disease, colon biopsies from the treated rodents showed an average disease score, meaning where how many symptoms there are, how intense they are, how far they've progressed, the average score was about 1.5 on a scale of 0 to 8, whereas the control group had an average score of 5. Very, very cool. And by the way, these are standardized uh, kind of measures that have been used for a very, very long time in these types of mouse models. So they're, um, what do you say, they're, they're uh, well uh, studied, well uh, codified. I I like that we started this episode talking about the science behind being hangry and then went to the scientists straight up stealing techniques from chefs to make brand new treatments. Like nobody has tried to treat anything as far as I know with a foam. We do have a few topical gels, um, but can you think of any other foam-based medical treatment, Santosh? I... I mean, soaps, absolutely. So, you know, if you have a, you know, either regular soap, antibacterial, antimicrobial, or chlorhexidine are whipped up into a foamy, you know, kind of thing, and that delivers the cleaning agent very, very well onto the skin. But especially putting a foam in someone, like a gastronomic type of foam with all of these yummy maltodextrins and xanthan gums and stuff, uh, no, no, I don't have a good example. I don't know if you do. I I imagine this is going to be a whole team of like pharmacists and medical chefs. Like, <laughs> oh, first you make the foam, insert yeah. the drug. <laughs> Are you thinking of the chef from like Little Mermaid? <laughs> but then, you know, you could actually go up and be like, and uh, excellent. The gentleman will have, you know, the, the potato foam nitroglycerin. For tonight's angiogram, we've prepared yeah. <laughs> a selection of a statin consomme with <laughs> with a beta blocker gastrique topped off <laughs> topped off with just a slight amuse bouche of TPA. 
Oh, it's and in a in a in a delicate reduction. There, you always have to have a reduction. And yeah, yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> serving it in petition to rename IV bags like Starbucks. Serving it yeah. in a grande, <laughs> lactated lactated ringers. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, would Sir like to dine at his bed, or would <laughs> Sir like this have th- this inserted rectally? oh this makes me so happy all of it all of it this was a fun collaboration uh between you know traverso otterbein who had done a lot of this research leading up to this and then this specific foam uh where the lead author dr byrne was in iowa so listening audience Find us on the socials and give us your favorite medical recipes yeah. <laughs> that you'd like to see that you'd like to see in a molecular gastronomy clinic. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Like a light amoxicillin chutney. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Let's move on yeah. to our last story, although I I'm sorry to say it's nowhere near as fun. Oh, okay. A new a new implantable device may find a way to treat chronic pain by chilling nerves inside the body. Like, you know, when you tell Whoa. people who are just very agitated to chill out, well, now that's a medical yeah. treatment. <laughs> oh my God. We're turning the world on its head. We've got gastronomic inventions going up the butt and actual idioms becoming true to life. Damn. So, most of the time, putting ice on an injury is something everybody thinks of to just ease pain. Mm-hmm. But sometimes pain is neuropathic. It's nerve fibers inside the body, and you just can't reach those with ice. Until now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, tell me about it. John Rogers at Northwestern University in Illinois, wanted to target pain nerves directly, not using opioids because they can be addictive, not mm-hmm. using ice packs because they're simply not always as effective and can also damage the skin if held in place too long. So John Rogers developed a thin, flexible strip of material that contains okay. small channels for chemicals to flow through. One end gets wrapped around a nerve fiber, almost like a little cuff. The other end emerges from the skin and is connected to a small pump, and that pump receives nitrogen gas and a liquid called perfluoropentane, PFP, that is not the same as the toxic liquid that was used to be in refrigerators and air conditioners. Yeah, they, they are not CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, yeah. Totally different initials, perfluoropentanes. <laughs> Correct pumped in through the separate channels and the chemicals mix at the far end of the strip that causes the pfp to sublimate providing a cooling effect the gas and nitrogen then return through a third channel to the pump where they separate and it changes back into a liquid so basically you have this gas combining separating cooling and and repeating and this device can chill nerves to 10 degrees celsius Reduce wow. the pain signals sent to the brain. It was tested as a prototype in rats, and it's made from biodegradable materials. So instead of the typical PCAs, you could implant this after surgery, control it by simply turning on turning a knob like an air conditioning, and then over time, <laughs> it's absorbed by the body as pain from the operation eases. 
That is so cool. Now, we've had absorbable materials for a long time. We use them for sutures. And we do have absorbable stents now. Um, so the stent that you put in to open up an artery so that blood can flow better in coronary artery disease, some of those are biodegradable and absorbable. But this combination of innovations where he's using microfluidics, biodegradable, you know, materials, and then paint control using cooling, which is now well known. That's, this is so fantastic. And I'm guessing, Josh, if it's wrapped right around the nerve right there, the cooling is very, very local. So you're not hurting other tissues around it. So for instance, you're not harming like the muscles and the blood vessels and, and everything else that's surrounding that nerve. Correct. Now, to do this, nerves are pretty small for the most part. So to test the device, they were using some big nerves, the sciatic nerve, one of our largest, and Uh they used the sciatic nerve in the leg of three rats and then injured their paws so they became even more sensitive. They gave them this implant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then Then three weeks later, when each paw was pressed using the measuring device, it required seven times more force to make the animals retract their leg when the cooling was turned on, meaning the pain relief was so effective, they really had to up the amount of pain they were inducing to provoke a reaction from the rats, which is a wow. pretty good indication that they had numbed the paw and resolved the pain. <laughs> when you numb a paw, paw, <laughs> from a prickly pear... <laughs> And you numb the wrong paw. <laughs> Next time, beware. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's from the that's from the Jungle Book. As long as you have the bare necessities. There you go. That's the song. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this kind of implant obviously would be most useful in people with severe long term pain or post surgically because these are both harder to treat with opioids without leading to tolerance. If you have Things like fibromyalgia or endometriosis or any one of a number of more chronic pain-related conditions. So it is still obviously being tested in animals. The next step is to figure out how much nerves can be chilled and for how long without causing harm. What's the maximum amount that you could have this device turned on? And is it the kind of thing that can be monitored in a hospital setting or you'd be able to take home if we figure out the mechanics? Yeah. So anything that you reduce down to 10 degrees, any tissue, there's going to be death from the cooling. And then there is going to be a rewarming injury that happens if the warming is too rapid and uncontrolled. So There is the potential here for not just, you know, actually cooling the nerve down, but you could kill it. And you can imagine then these are nerve cells, really, really tough to regenerate and grow back, which is something you definitely don't want to do. So you'd have to have all sorts of safety checks on this. But I think the neat thing here, Josh, is this is, it's kind of a whole brand new idea. And it's, Well, I I take that back. The idea has been thought about for millennia, you know, as long as humans have been alive, cool it down, bring down the pain. But 
executing it this kind of a way, we had to come to certain developments in material sciences and understandings in neurology, microfluidics. So it's a really cool nexus of a lot of different scientific disciplines and technologies. Yeah, so now we may have a way to treat chronic pain. So no cures, no problems. (laughs) Yay. I love that. Um, But I still really want to hear everybody's recipe. And Mm. that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, Wash your hands, get your shot, wear a mask in crowded areas, look for a medical <laughs> place to visit in there, and when you've done all of those things, pack your oh. bags, and happy travels. Happy travels, guys. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.